my ethics professor at Southwestern used to preach to us saying, no action that you ever perform is morally neutral. And he'd say there's every choice that you make represents the worldview that you hold in your heart. It all represents your values. It all represents what you hold dear. You're motivated as a Christian, as a human being, by what you love and by what you worship. And he taught us that your actions reveal what your object of worship is. We can say and profess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is our Lord, but we can have other functional gods. Or we say we serve Yahweh, but with our hands and our feet and with our mouths, we serve other gods. And by what we do, we betray the allegiance of our heart. Because as Christians, we're truth tellers. We live truth and we speak truth. We're in the deep end of the pool with respect to truth. That's what we do. And Jesus says, there's no concealing what's in your heart. And he goes on to reveal this by saying, you will know them by their fruits, by what you do with your hands and feet and by what you speak with your mouth and what your tongue say. And it's been true for all people and all places at all times that the question is not whether we worship, but what we worship. And it comes to pass with how we act and behave, what it is that we worship. Paul says to the Corinthians, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And to the Colossians, he says the same thing. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to him, to God the Father. And listen to the language. Do all things to the glory of God. Do everything, whatever you do, do everything for God and the name of Jesus Christ. Whatever, all, or everything is to be done for God and through Christ. And that is, as a Christian, your value system. That is your worldview. That is your motivation. And if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul's going to say a very similar thing, and he actually did last week. As we looked at chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. God is a tester. We didn't really get into that last week, but God is a tester by nature. And out of the abundance of his testing nature, he reveals to us what is truly in our heart. And if you will allow it this morning, he will test your hearts through the scriptures. And if you will listen and give ear and bow the knee to the Holy Spirit, he will teach you through verses five to eight, these four verses he will show you the idols that are in your heart. And we can be faithful, as he says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, we can turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait on a son who appears from heaven. That's, that's my prayer for us this morning, that God would reveal to us any carnality that's left in our flesh, and we will hand it over to God in Christ. And so Paul elaborates this in verses 5 to 8. The outline this morning is simple. In verses 5 to 6, Tying this to verse 4 of last week, we speak not to please men, but to please God. He says in verse 5 to 6, he's going to reveal the things in this world that please man, that please the self, that please your own heart. And then in verses 7 to 8, he's going to reveal what glorifies God in heaven, the tester of our hearts. And so as Christians, we want to speak only to please God. And to seek first ourselves is to fall into the trap of 1 Timothy 6 where he says, seeking after your own material gain is to go down the path of those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And Christians, we are not depraved in mind. 
We have been given the Holy Spirit, and we have the mind of Christ. And our mind is being renewed every day. God says he's renewed your mind, and he is renewing your mind. And we're not deprived of the truth. We come and we open up. We have a whole book, 66 books of the truth. And we're saturated in it. We swim in this truth. We are truth tellers by nature. And by, through this word, God teaches us what is good and what's acceptable and what's perfect. And we want to know and to speak the truth. And let's read together 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 to 8, where Paul says, I'm not trying to please men, but God. Beginning in verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Verses 5 and 6, the things that glorify man. Verses 7 and 8, Paul reveals the things that glorify God. We're going to start in 5 and 6. What are the things that glorify men? Paul says in verse 5, I never came to you, I never came to you trying to serve myself. And as he says that, he says, You know, you are my witnesses that I never came to you trying to seek selfish things. And he says, and actually, I call God as my witness that I never came to you seeking anything but making Christ known. And then he says, and also my own conscience bears me witness. All of these witnesses, myself, my own heart, you, God himself reveal, I never tried to please men and I never tried to please myself. And in these four verses, Paul qualifies how he came to them. Remember, this is the entering in that he had among them. He's going to start talking about the Thessalonian church and the significance for them, but he's still talking about himself and how he came into this city. And he says, when I came in, I never did any of these four things. Paul makes four negative statements about how he, Silvanus, and Timothy never conducted themselves among the Thessalonian church in that city. And number one, he says, I didn't come with words of flattery. I didn't come flattering you. Number two, I didn't come seeking money. I didn't come greedy for gain. Number three, he says, I didn't come seeking praise. I didn't come for the applause of men and of people. And finally, number four, he says, we didn't come making demands as apostles. Literally, in the original, we didn't come throwing our weight around. And so in short, he says, we didn't come seeking money, praise, or power. And if there's anything in this world, as you know, that people still seek after, seek hard after in this world. It's money, praise, we might throw in sex and power. And Paul says, God is my witness. This was not how I entered in among you. These things are the very root of human sinful nature. And you go again for all people in all places at all times, going back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve since the fall. These have been the things that plagued our hearts. These are the things that we're trying to crucify in ourselves so that there will be no hindrance to our worship so that the gospel has a clear highway into the hearts of the people that we're trying to reach. We have to crucify the flattery and the money and the praise and the power because you can't seek these things first and be a Christian. It's going to be painfully apparent as we go through this. You cannot seek these things and please God. Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. He says it does not submit to God's law and indeed it cannot. 
Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He says, it's not that you just won't believe, it's that you can't believe. Jesus is going to say that greed has the power to choke out the implanted word in your heart. It's going to keep you from bearing fruit. There's, a, there's power in our carnal nature, but we say there's more power in the one who crucified it. And so there's these four denials, flattery, money, praise, and power. And Paul comes first with the first denial. He says, I never came trying to flatter people. And this first word, this first denial is different from all of the others. He, we'll just read it one more time for context. Chapter 2, verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know. And this first denial is different from all the other three because the first is the means. How do you seek money, praise, and power? How do you extract that from the world? Well, you flatter people with your mouth. So the first one's unique. It's the means to the end, where the other three are the ends or the fruit themselves. This is how you get the things of this world. And flattery is a unique word in the Bible because it never shows up anywhere except here. And so if we want to know what does it mean to flatter someone, we have to actually look outside the Bible and see how it was used in that day. And even going back a little ways, a few hundred years, to that great philosopher Aristotle, he said, this is what a flatterer is. The person whose goal it is to make someone happy in order to profit in money or in goods that can be bought with money. So what is the flatterer? He's somebody who tries to make people happy with smooth words, silky, silvery, smooth words. And these are words that are, imp they are deceitful by their very nature because you're concealing the truth. You conceal your crooked intentions with smooth words. And so to flatter somebody is on the surface or at, at the core of it even is deceitful because they're not talking to people truthfully. And words of flattery, as you know, have to be concealed because it's built on deception. If the person you're flattering understands what you're trying to do, it shuts the whole enterprise down, doesn't it? Because they say, you're just in it to get my money or my power. You want something that I have. And words of flattery are invisible only to vain and insecure people who want their egos boosted, who have some kind of insecurity that you can fill with your smooth words. And so flattery is against the gospel. Alistair Begg, if any of you listen to him, he was my favorite professor in a seminary. And he said he had to learn as a young child the dangers of flattery. And so he told this illustration of as he was a kid, all the little old ladies in the church used to come and pinch his cheeks and tell him how cute he was and uh, how handsome he was all the time. Some of you are guilty of this. And he said he had to learn a lesson. One of the were truth tellers that said this. One of the little old ladies in the church came up to him and said, flattery is like perfume. You sniff it, you don't swallow it. And that's true. Flattery, you, you hold people like this that come to you with smooth and silvery words. You hold them at arm's distance. You, don't, you sniff what they say, but you don't swallow it. And be wary of those who come to you praising you. The Greek philosopher, philosopher Plutarch wasn't a few centuries before Paul. He was a contemporary of Paul. And when he speaks, he says that words of flattery are the polar opposite of being bold in your speech. And if you were here last week, Paul said that there is a boldness that comes from the speech of a Christian. And boldness defined by Paul was that we don't allow any external circumstance or internal conviction keep us from preaching what we know to be true. So Paul goes, and as he's going, maybe to be thrown in prison again, maybe to be martyred, he says, it doesn't matter. 
what the consequences are. I've been given this message, and I have to be faithful to proclaim this message. I have to be bold with what God has given me. And what Plutarch teaches is that flattery is the polar opposite of this. Because rather than being bold, you're being a coward. And you're concealing the truth behind your words. You're concealing your intentions. You're concealing the truth. You're caring about consequences. You're caring about other people's opinions. And so he says, you're not bold. Actually, as a flatterer, you're a coward, hiding crooked motivations behind smooth words. And David, in the Psalms, has a lot to say about this. He says in Psalm 12, save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. And here's his petition. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. May flatterers be not even named among this church. And contrast that with David's words as we continue on in verse 6. How are Christians to speak? He says, the words of the Lord, however, are pure. They are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. These are words that have gone through the refiner's fire, and they are as pure as can be. Paul says to the Ephesians, our words must be gracious and seasoned with salt. We're truth tellers. We don't conceal ourselves behind carnal intentions. And to be a flatterer is to fly in the face of a God who, by his very attribute, is being impartial. God is impartial. And so for you to speak differently to somebody who has money or power or something to offer you flies in the face of the very God you serve. So as Christians, we do not flatter. And Paul says, God forbid that I ever came to you. He actually says, we didn't come with words of flattery, as you know. He tells him, when we came to you, we didn't come like the world came to you. And when, when pagan philosophers came into metropolises like Thessalonian or Thessalonica, they came to big cities so they could make a big living. And the, the Greeks valued the work of the mind over the work of the hands. And they thought that multiplying words and being a skilled orator was somehow better than being a laborer or a contractor. And so the beauty of Paul is he came preaching choice words and yet at the same time working with his hands, making tents. In doing that, he redeemed all that work for us as Christians. If you're a laborer, if you're a thinker, as a Christian, both are pure. And he says, my motives to you, Thessalonica, were pure, and you know, from all the time I spent with you, you know that my intentions were pure. To Paul's first denial, I did not come to flatter you. Second denial, he says in verse 5, I never came with a motive of greed. Chapter 2, verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. And this word pretext comes in the ESV and the NASB, and it has a very, very negative connotation. The word in the original has a negative connotation. If you have an NIV, your translation says a mask. The NIV translates it, we never put on a mask to cover up our greed. The King James translates it cloak, saying we didn't put on a cloak of covetousness. ESV, NASB says pretext, which means giving a reason for a course of action that is different for the real course of action. So Paul's saying, I didn't come to you preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ when really what I was after was money, wealth, sex, or power. He goes, and you know this. You can't have ulterior motives as a Christian. We want to make Christ known and to have a highway into the hearts of people. And so Paul didn't come, and he comes here, and he says what he says only three other times in all of Scripture, which shows his blood earnestness 
the seriousness and depth of his conviction, he says, I appeal to God as my witness. If you want to know how serious I am about this issue, I didn't come seeking anything else but making Christ known and him and his crucifixion. He appeals to God as his witness, but watch this. He doesn't only appeal to God as his witness for not coming with a pretext for greed. He says, I didn't even come, I, I hid even the appearance of the love of money from you. It wasn't that he was greedy, but he was free from even the appearance of being greedy. And so Paul thought about this before he ever entered into this city. He talks about his entering in among them, and this was something that they thought about before they ever even went in. And I think the conversation between Paul and Silvanus and Timothy might have gone something like this. We're stepping into a major metropolis, a city that's literally filled with orators who are trying to make their money by talking to people. And the question is, how can we set ourselves apart from every other orator when they're a dime a dozen? And if you picture Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, it's a sad sight because their backs truly were bleeding from being whipped in Philippi. And their legs, the strength of their legs is failing under them because their feet have been fastened in the stocks. And now here they are walking to Thessalonica. And they're saying, how can we differentiate ourselves from every other dime a dozen preacher in Thessalonica? And what was their answer? We'll never ask for money. We will never ask for a cent because we know every other order will may be making his living through his oration. And he says, this is how we'll differentiate ourselves. This is how they will know that we're not greedy like everybody else. We will never take a cent, a lepton from anyone. And so when the Thessalonians ask Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, what do you want in return for this pure preaching of the gospel? Their answer will be nothing except that you believe in Jesus Christ and embrace him as your Lord and Savior and thereby be saved. Do you need a place to stay, Paul? No. All I need from you is that you believe in Jesus and embrace him as your Savior. That's a message and a lifestyle that's different from anybody else. And I want to point out, Paul had every right to ask for money. And he had every right to exert his power and authority as an apostle. He tells the Corinthians in the passage we read this morning, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And Chris Joins and I really appreciate this verse because this is how we support our families. And Paul says, as an apostle, he has every right to make his living through the gospel. But what does he say in verse 12? But we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will have no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, he says again, I have used none of these things. And I'm not writing these things so that you will give me money. I don't want this to be done in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast be an empty one. What is his boast in the Lord? He says, what is my boast before the Lord and in his appearing? Is it not you? You are my boast. You are my pride. Not the money that you give to me or the praise, the applause that I get when I finish my sermon. And he finally says in verse 18, what then is my reward that when I preach the gospel, I may, I may offer the gospel freely and without charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. So Paul says, I had every reason to take money from you, but to get rid of even the appearance of greed, I never took a dime so that the gospel would go forward unhindered. And so as Christians, we too need to be on our guard against the greed that inevitably creeps up in our hearts 
because we are not free, just like the Thessalonians weren't free. We're not free from greed. And you don't graduate when you get the Holy Spirit from the, the carnal things that still exist in your flesh. And if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we're, we're, we're greedy. We crave and we want more. This is why Jesus says in Luke 12, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That's a divine imperative and a divine command. Be on your guard, lest greed come into your own heart. And be on your guard, lest you find yourself in violation of the 10th commandment, where God says, don't covet anything. I am enough. And the, uh, he says, don't even just be free from greed, but be free from even the appearance of greed. And this is where it gets tricky. Because sometimes we see people with a lot of money and we say, well, they must be greedy. And the truth is, as you know, some of the wealthiest people you know are the most humble, kind, generous, least greedy people you know. And some of the poorest people you know are the greediest people you've ever met. And so this isn't a matter of what the Lord has entrusted you with. It's a matter of your heart. And so whatever it is and whatever lifestyle that you're living in, whatever situation and how you fill your days, Consider this with your own family and with your own soul. How can I get rid of even the pretext for greed, even the appearance of greed? And I didn't even have a category to think about this when I was in college 12 years ago. And we were, the final class that we had to take as engineers was a class where they put seniors together with freshmen. And it was a really fun experience. We had to make a movie about what it's like to be an engineer. And we got to do a lot of fun things. But as part of that interaction with seniors and freshmen, I remember one of the professors said, they, they went around and asked every one of the senior engineers to tell the freshmen why we became an engineer. And I remember as it went around the room, one after another, we all pretty much said the same thing. Um, we're kind of in it for the salary. We're in this because it, it pays well. It's not like the job is, it's stressful and we're, we're, we're in it for the money. And it went around and everybody pretty well said the same until it came to a guy named Mark. And when Mark spoke, he said, I'm, I'm in engineering because I want to help people. And he said, actually, I'd, I'd love to work for a not-for-profit. And he said, I'm, I'm willing to work for free because I know there's people in this world and, and organizations and nonprofits and that, that can't afford high engineering fees. And he said, and I want to be able to provide that service to them for free. And come to find out, Mark was a Christian. And I thought Mark was an idiot. And I had no way of understanding this. And I thought he just didn't get it. But in reality, I, I didn't get it. And this was 1 Corinthians 2.14. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, for they are spiritually discerned. And so Mark understood something that I didn't. He didn't tell the kind of jokes that I told. And he didn't engage in the kind of things that I did. And years later... When the Spirit enlightened my mind to understand Mark's motivations, I, I broke down. I had to look him up online. I found him on Facebook, and I reached out, and I, I thanked him for his Christian example and his Christian witness, and he, he appreciated that. And I, I recognize now how hard it is. I saw, I mean, there was a, a number. I can measure it, how many people were greedy for gain. And Mark, it's hard to be a Christian in the midst of so much greed is the point I'm trying to make. Not that we all had, didn't have noble intentions as well, but it's difficult to be a Christian in a culture that wants so much money. And the point of the sermon is not that you have to sell all your possessions and live in abject poverty, which is kind of what Paul decided that he was going to do. Maybe you are called to that. 
but to demonstrate to the culture somehow that you're not motivated by greed, that you're motivated only by your love of them and your desire to share the gospel. And so reflect with your families and yourself on how you can eliminate this as you seek to win people to Christ. Because our cultural West is not that much different than Thessalonica. We're a little less religious, but our carnal desires are the same. We still love money and sex and wealth, and we still seek after the same things. And when Alexis de Tocqueville came to America in 1831, he, he saw our American experiment, and he thought it was bold, and he praised it. But he said, you know, you and your democratic experience and experiment, he had a few things to say against us. When he came and reflected on America, he said, money seems to be quite simply the only achievement that Americans respect. Do you think that's still true today? He says, how do you know, for instance, if a book is a successful book? It's the first question we ask. Well, how many copies did it sell? Was it on the New York Times bestseller list? Because that's the standard. And he noticed as he went around, he said, America is an extremely prosperous nation. Everybody seems to be doing better than everybody everywhere else. And he said, and yet, in the midst of all your prosperity, there is a, quote, restlessness in the midst of your prosperity. And he says, it's because you have hundreds, if not thousands and tens of thousands of reference points for success and wealth. And he says, and you see it and you compare yourself to it and you find yourself restless with what you have. And it's, a, it's not that it's not a good thing that there can't be a Christian desire to be in high places and a motivation. Those things are great, but there's the, the temptation for greed to slip in, to see the wealthy around us and for greed to kick in and say, we want more. It's easy to become enslaved to more. And in the midst of this kind of democracy, the 10th commandment provides in two words in the original, a fresh word for the church of our day, because on the second tablet of the law that God wrote with his own hand, in two words, he said, no coveting. That's as simple as it can get. There can be no coveting in the heart of a Christian. And Paul says, there is no coveting in my heart. He says in 1 Timothy 6, we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of this world. If we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. And Jesus shows the power of greed because he says, even in his own parable, that the implanted word can, it can be kept from implanting. As a matter of fact, the preached word can be kept from implanting because people are greedy and they're not willing to turn away like the rich young ruler from the things that they've accomplished in this world. Jesus is going to go on to say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for somebody who's greedy to enter into the kingdom of heaven, which, by the way, is an impossibility because greed covers our own hearts, and were it not for Jesus Christ, none of us would enter into the kingdom of heaven. Paul says money's the root of all kinds of evil. It's for what people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth set their minds on, but not so with Christians. He says, rather than material gain, godliness with contentment is great gain. And he's going to say, which is extremely important for the coming verses, it is better to give than to receive. And Paul did not come glorifying himself. He came as a Christian, which brings us to the third denial. Paul says, I never came demanding glory or honor. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. And the word glory is not glory in a religious sense, where they see the Shekinah glory of God from heaven or, or anything like that. This is glory as in fame. You wanting people to applaud you. You wanting likes and, and clout on social media. It's fame, renown, recognition, honor, or prestige. 
And so, Christian, there is no denying your good works. The things that you do will be seen by your culture. We saw that the Thessalonian church became famous in Macedonia and Achaia because of their good works. But he says, we didn't come seeking that. We didn't come wanting you to, to, to praise us. That's what the Pharisees did. They had the wrong motive. Luke 16, verse 1, it says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things and ridiculed Jesus. They were greedy. And he moves on even now. It says in Matthew 23, 5, they loved to be seen by others. They loved to be praised by men and to be seen by men. So what did the religious, and it was the religious, the, the seeming Christians of the day, what were they doing? They were trying to seek man and to glorify man rather than glorify God above. John 5, John, the, the prophet, the apostle says, how can you believe when you receive glory from another? It's a question for you. How can you believe in the gospel and in Christ if you seek glory from another source? And what is his answer? You can't. You can't believe when you're seeking glory from other things. We have to look for God's favor. Matthew 23, 4, the Pharisees, it says, tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And Paul says, I didn't come to get your praise. I didn't come wanting your applause. I didn't want likes on my Facebook page or my whatever it is. He says, I came to make Christ known. I came to be faithful. He came to be faithful final denial of Paul. He says, I never came making a demand as an apostle. Verse 6, he says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And so remember, Paul had a legitimate appeal to authority, and he had a legitimate access to their money. He had every right to take those things, and he said he didn't because he was God's authorized apostle to the Gentiles, and he carried spiritual authority. And you can ask yourself, how might Paul have gained wealth or money or sex or honor from these people. And it would have been really easy for him to do, wouldn't it? He could have come in and said, well, I'm the apostle of God, the chosen elect prophet to the Gentiles, and God said that I am to make my living through the gospel. He could have multiplied smooth words to them, given that power, and he could have flattered them, and he could have had anything. He could have come to them and said, I make my living through the gospel, now get out your wallets but they would not have been able to differentiate him from any other prophet. And so he gave up those rights, choosing instead to glorify God and coming like Christ. So all of these are how Paul never came to the Thessalonians. And now I want to show you how he did. That was how he didn't please men, but now you have to see how he did please God. In verses 7 to 8, Paul says, I didn't come like the philosophers, but I came with a legitimate renunciation of power. And his discussion here shows the pattern for life and ministry for any Christian who is in a position of power or authority over another. And this could be as simple as you having power or authority over your own children. How are you to behave as a Christian leader in your community, in your job, as an employer? He says, this is how you are to come to people. And you can go read every book you want on the Christian leadership shelves at Books A Million or wherever. He says, that's not how we came to you. We came to you as Christ came to the world. We get our leadership from the, the principles found in this book, the Christ-like pattern modeled for us by Christ. Philippians 2, 
It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is your model, Paul says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, what? A thing to be grasped. I didn't covet that power that I had. And so instead, he says, he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant. He became a slave and even the slave of slaves. He became the servant of prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus didn't lord his power over people, but he gave up his power for the sake of the church. Luke 22, 25, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But listen to this, not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you be as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. We are servant leaders. Even in Philemon, verse 8, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you what is required, yet for love's sake, I appeal to you. And this is where Paul, he says, he gets some critique in his letter where people say, you know, you're, you're really bold, Paul, and when you write these letters, right? You're really bold when you're away from us, but when you're here, you're actually really soft, you're kind of tender, and you're like a nursing mother. You're really affectionate. And he's like, that's right, <laughs> because when I'm away from you, I appeal to you, and I hold this high standard and the high calling above you, but when I'm with you, I, I love you. I'm not going to be bold and assert my authority there. I'm going to come beside you and to walk along and exhort you, and that's how we are as elders and, and pastors and preachers as well. You're like, you're really bold, Aaron, when you're in front of everybody behind that pulpit, but when you're from house to house and you're in your life group, you're actually kind of kind of soft and weak. And you're like, that's right, because <laughs> I have to hold you to this high calling, but when I'm with you, I love you. And I want to be tender and affectionate, just like Paul is. And this is, this is natural for you as a leader. There's a time and a place. You have a legitimate authority, but you don't have to use it. And it's a bad leader or a desperate leader who comes to you and says, well, I'm the boss, so here's what you need to do. And sometimes there's a time and a place for that, but that is a last resort. We lead by serving and Paul has three metaphors. We're going to see two today and one next week. There's three metaphors that he has for how he glorified God among them. He says, I came to you like an infant, verse 7. I came to you like a nursing mother, again in verse 7. And I came to you like a father, in verse 11. So first he says, I glorified God by coming to you like an infant. Verse 7, it says, but we were gentle among you. And there's um, a small dispute over this verse because the word for gentle in the original and the word for infant is only one letter different. And so the best manuscripts of the Bible will use the word infant, but leads some to say, it seems like if you use that, then he's mixing metaphors where he's saying, I'm going to be an infant among you like a mother. I like, well, that doesn't make sense. So he must mean something else. But the, the best manuscripts again say, as the NIV translates, we were like young children among you just as a nursing mother cares for her children. And I don't care which one of these you hold to because the meaning is exactly the same. Paul is using this illustration of being gentle or being an infant. He's trying to communicate his innocence among them. And we're going to go with uh, the infant metaphor because I think it goes with this idea of, a, of, a, of an infant and a mother and a father. But the meaning is he's innocent because no child is seeking money. And no child is trying to exercise his authority over his mom and his dad. There's an age where they do that, but it's not as an infant. And he says, I, I came to you purely, innocently. You remember in Jeremiah, even as children were dying, God says they died in their innocence. Not that they're free from original sin, but there's something innocent about a child. And Paul says, I didn't, like a child, I didn't make demands of you. 
And he goes, he goes on to say that the oratory industry, this is just kind of a, an aside, the oratory industry was cutthroat. And these preachers were a dime a dozen. And this is how he, he separates himself from this. He says, I don't want to get into competition with all these other people. He says, I want to come to you like a child and like innocent. This is, this is what he says to Timothy. An overseer must be gentle. He even adds, free from the love of money. If you want to be a pastor of a church or a missionary, you have to be innocent among your people, even correcting opponents, heretics. How do you correct them as a pastor? 2 Timothy 2, correct untruth in gentleness. In all places, at all times, we want to be innocent among the people that we serve. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. No motive except to proclaim Christ and him crucified. He says, I came to you, verse 7 again, he says, we were like infants among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. So he says, I'm like a child, an infant, in that I'm innocent among you. And he says, and now I'm like a nursing mother in that I love you. A, a nursing mother loves her own children. It says she cherishes her child. It literally means to keep them warm. That's how Paul came to this church, to, to, to nurse them, figuratively speaking, at his breast to keep them warm. That's the image of how he pastored and planted this church, which is why that the word that he uses here for mother is not just the word for mother. It means a nursing mother. It could be even translated a wet nurse. He says, I came to you not to take. What infant or what mother has a desire to take something from her child? What wet nurse is seeking gain from her baby? Paul says, that's how I came to you. I was innocent. I love you. I would never take anything from you as a mother would never take anything from a child. And he uses such tender, affectionate language. He says, I'm affectionately desirous of you. I'm pleased by you. Not for money, praise, and power, but just to share the gospel with you. He says, you became very dear to us. This is all communicating personal affection. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and our hearts are wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. That's the message from Paul to the Corinthians and the Colossians, then the Thessalonians, and that's his message to you. Open your hearts also. Widen your hearts. Make more room in your hearts for the people in your church and your community. And there's, you must be real as a Christian and as a church. There's no pretense here. There's no mask or cloak, and if you put one on, shame on you. Because when you come to church, these are our brothers and our sisters, and we come as a nursing mother, and we come innocently. So contra the, the American rat race, Paul models just a quiet pattern of life for these believers. He says, I'm like a child. I'm like a nursing mother. And then he says, we shared with you not only the gospel. We went that far. We opened our mouth and proclaimed to you the gospel, but he says, we, we went further than that. We shared with you our own selves. In the original, the, the translation is soul. We gave to you our own soul. And so what does this mean to give yourself to others like this, to share in a way that you're sharing your own soul? And I think it means a few things. I think to share your own soul with somebody else is to practice hospitality, at least. To share your soul with somebody else means allowing them access to your proximity giving them space and pews and seats to sit in at church. And it's, we've requested this book or 
put this book forward again before, but Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book showing the high calling of hospitality, saying the gospel comes with a house key. And that's true. When you proclaim the gospel to somebody, you give them, you're in, in essence giving them a key to your home because you're sharing yourself with them. Yes, with your church. And I think here he's specifically talking to the congregation, but you have to make room in your hearts even for people who have never yet set foot in the church. So sharing your soul is first sharing in hospitality, but second, I think it's charity. Because sharing your soul with somebody means at least sharing your resources with them. And so you have to give access to yourself, but giving access to your money. You make your home available and you make your resources available. And what nursing mother does not give resources to her child? You would give anything for them, which is why we don't request resources from the world as a church. We are the resource to the world as the church, right? We don't demand anything from the world. We give and we pour ourselves out. And a church without a benevolence budget has a faulty gospel. And you and your family, if you do not have a benevolence budget, need to seriously reevaluate what you're doing with your money and your time. We need to be charitable. And finally, it means availability. And I think this is the hardest ones for us when we're so busy to make ourselves available to people, to put our phones down and to lean in and to listen and to invite them over to your home where you have your undistracted attention. It's hard, but that's what it means to give your own soul, to give access to yourself to provide the warmth of a mother who is nursing her children. That's the image of you and your family and your church and even your community. You have to offer this to the world who's longing for relationship because this world doesn't understand what this means. They don't know what biblical fellowship is like and they need this, they crave this. They try and get surrogate, they try and seek it in other places and it's just not there. And so we have to give them access to this as a church. And we need to be, as Paul says, affectionately desirous of our church and our family and our world. It's true for all people in all places at all times that the question is never whether something is worshiped, but what is worshiped. And Paul says, I came to you, Thessalonica, to make it overwhelmingly clear that I worship the God of the Bible. There was no mixed motives. There was no words of flattery. There was no hidden greed. There was no de desire for praise and applause. There was no grappling for power and throwing their weight around. He came to preach Christ and him crucified. And he covered his steps and took pains to make sure that nobody could accuse him of any other motive. And we would do well to model our lives after his because he modeled his life after Jesus Christ. He came to them as Christ came to Paul. And Jesus is the author of all wealth. He has all power. He's omnipotent. He's the one worthy of all praise, and we will not rob him of those things. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't count equality or power with God, the thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He came the slave of all. And as a matter of fact, he says that if you do not partake of Christ, you will never enter into his kingdom. If you do not partake of Jesus Christ, and he is so bold to say in John 6, if you don't eat his flesh and drink his blood and so become one with him, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he says, if you do, you will share with him in his life and you will share with him in his death and to the glory of God alone for the promise for all of us as a church is if we partake with him, we will share with him in his resurrection. And that is what we invite this world into. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, 
Today is the day for that. Do not leave this place. Now is the acceptable time, and today is the day of salvation for you. Come and talk to me. And before, as you prepare your heart to do that, I ask that you pray with me one last time. Lord God in heaven, we need your humility. We need you to save us because without you, there is no escape from greed and power. These things are so enticing to us, Lord. And for those of us who have been saved, help us to flee from them. Like Joseph fled, help us just to run the opposite direction and to seek you and you fully. We want to make you known, Lord. We want to glorify you, not ourselves. Fill us with humility. Teach us, Lord, how to do that. We give you praise and you alone and you honor and you glory. And we ask this in the name of your son. Amen.